Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody to Nightlight. So glad you could join me today. I have a special, special lady with me. Uh, before I get into the show, though, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk, as always, for his amazing voice uh, in the intro. Um, he is a native storyteller, and he and his wife have lots of CDs, so do check him out on the internet. Listen to the voice, tell stories of how one culture, you know, preserved their history and cosmology in a way that is far better than books, I think. I have with me today uh, an old friend. Actually, I've known her for a very long time. We don't talk too often, but um, I have known her for years and years. And Susan Shumsky is with us, and she has written an amazing book. And I must tell you, um, it, it is probably one of the, the best book on the Beatles that I have ever read, and I've read a couple. And it, it's, it's actually an upfront and personal, she was in the front lines type, and, and you know, she had a way of observing them almost, almost I, I don't think she, she was same time, same place, but she was in the same area and the same generation and the same period of time frame as they were. So her explanation and her way of portraying those times and that culture and that way of life is really very, very profound. The name of the book is The Inner Light, How India Influenced the Beatles. And it portrays the spiritual journey of the the Beatles um, and, and of that entire generation of visionaries in the 60s who transformed the world. The Inner Light illumines hidden meanings of the Beatles' India-influenced lyrics and sounds. And she decoded, you know, she is a unique person. She was a rare insider 
who spent two decades in the ashrams and six years on the personal staff of the Beatles mentor, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. This eye-opening book draws back the curtain on the Beatles' experiments with psychedelics, meditation, chanting, and Indian music. And among many shocking revelations, we discover who invented Raga Rock, not the Beatles, the real identity of rare Indian instruments and musicians on their tracks, which, the Beatles, which of the Beatles was the best meditator, not George, By the Beatles, <clears throat> why the Beatles left India in a huff, and John and George's attempts to return, Maharishi's accurate prediction, and who's sexy Sadie, Jojo, Bungalow Bill, Dear Prudence, Blackbird, My Sweet Lord, Hare Krishna, and The Fool on the Hill really were. Half a century later, the Beatles have sold more records than any other recording artist. A new generation wants to relive the magic of the flower power era and is now discovering the message of this iconic band and its four superstars. For people of all nations and ages, the Beatles' mystique lives on. The inner light is Susan's gift to their legacy. Susan has authored 20 books in English, released 36 foreign editions, won 43 book awards, and done 1,300 media appearances. A rare insider, she was on the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's personal staff for six years and lived in his ashrams for 20 years. Um, that's something I really want to talk to her about. I, I, I just... Oh, well, wait, let me bring... Oh, <laughs> hi, Susan, welcome to the show. <laughs> oh, I'm so thrilled to be here with you today, Barbara. I'm so excited. I am, too. I mean, you know, I've known you for a long time. I, I've known about your background, most of it, um, but not the, the 20 years in ashrams and, and being on the on the personal staff of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Um I just, that's such an incredible opportunity to share, um, to share in that kind of an environment and atmosphere. We'll get to your book, but what drew you into this modality, this, this spiritual journey that you were on and, and, um, Living in the ashrams for for twenty years—that's that's a lot. That's a lot of commitment. What was that like? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what drew me there was it was the time. The times. At that time, we were flower children. We were protesting the war. We were seeking higher consciousness. It wasn't just all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The hippie generation. It was about experiencing nirvana Uh and our gurus at that time were timothy leary and richard albert who later became ram Dass, and they were telling us to turn on tune in and drop out they wrote a book called the psychedelic experience which was a translation of the tibetan book of the dead basically and it was a handbook for taking acid Uh, they claimed that you could reach nirvana that way so that's what we were trying, that's what I and many other people of that generation, including the Beatles, were trying to do. And we thought we could get there through LSD, but some of us found out that was not the way, <laughs> at least for me. It was <laughs> yeah. a disaster. But 
I still wanted to reach Nirvana. So I was reading a lot of books like Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda, which seemed to be the primer of the time. Everyone read that book. Oh, yeah. And the... uh, and then there was the Buddhist scriptures. I was reading that. I was reading The Way of Zen and other works by Alan Watts. And in his books, he said that you have to find a meditation guide. Well, in the mid-19th century, you didn't exactly go to the yellow pages and look up meditation guide or anything <laughs> no. remotely similar to that. <clears throat> so I asked a friend, how do I find this meditation guide? And he said, well, have you ever tried to meditate on your own? I said, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. So much so that I lay on my bed. I didn't even know you're supposed to sit up when you meditate, Barbara. I lay on my bed and sort of prayed for or asked for a meditation. And immediately I was propelled into this ecstatic state. I could feel this cord or rush of energy rushing from the tips of my toes all the way to the top of my head. And I felt like I was plugged into this cosmic electric socket, but in a most ecstatic way. And I figured, well, I guess this is meditation. I didn't, I didn't know any better. Not only had I had my first meditation experience, but also kundalini awakening all at the same time without any drugs or anything. Uh-huh. So that was my first experience. And then I wound up, at, a friend took me to the Transcendental Meditation Center, and the rest is history. And you ended up in India? Yes. Um, I had such amazing experiences with TM so quickly that I wanted to become a teacher immediately. So I started applying to courses to go to India. And every time I applied, they said I was too young. (laughs) You're too young. You're too young. (laughs) But finally, in 1970, they allowed the younger students to go. That was the fourth time I applied, I think. And uh, including when the Beatles went, I applied to that course as well. I didn't know the Beatles would be there. No one knew, actually. But I applied. But I, once again, I was rejected because I was too young. But eventually I went in 1970. And then I spent six months there in India with Maharishi, uh, three months at the course. And then three months afterwards, a few of us hung around with him. It was like a handful of people. And I was one of them. And then uh-huh. um, I, later I joined his staff, his international staff. I was on his personal staff for six years. Now, that's, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with, with him to a degree. I'm more familiar with the Hare Krishna group. Um, is there a difference? Uh, I guess there is. I just don't know what it is. Right, so the Hare Krishna group was gained a tremendous amount of popularity around that time, too, especially after George Harrison left Maharishi in a huff and then joined, he didn't really join, formally join the Hare Krishnas, but he supported them in a lot of different ways, including uh-huh. paying for the rent on their temples that they uh, rented in Bury Place uh-huh. um, near Soho there in London, and also paying for this huge, amazing property, Bhaktivedanta Center in the suburbs of London, and yeah. also helping them uh, by recording the Hare Krishna mantra 
and doing another recording of a of an entire album of chants, Hare Krishna uh-huh. chants. So and so he was very close with them, with the Hare Krishnas. He practiced the mantra himself. He was very much into chanting the Hare Krishna mantra. One time uh-huh. when he was on an airplane, he was on a small craft, and the plane got hit three times by lightning, and it was. Uh, well, one of the engines. I mean, it was it was a bad scene. I think one of the engines might have gone out. I'm not sure, but he was chanting the Hare Krishna mantra at the top of his lungs during this entire ordeal, and he claims that it saved his life. So he he was really into chanting that mantra, and John Lennon also was into that. So the Hare Krishna, yes, they it was about chanting a mantra. The, specifically the Hare Krishna mantra, which is uh, Hare, um, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. That's it. That's the extent of it. It's a, it's a mantra that they chanted. And uh, Prabhupada, Bhaktivedanta Prabhupada, who was the founder of ISKCON, an International Society for Krishna Consciousness, he's the one that brought this mantra to the West, and that founded the Hare Krishna movement throughout the entire world. And amazingly, I think he was about age 70 when he first arrived in the U.S., and he wrote 80 books after that age, you know, and he founded hundreds of temples. He did a tremendous oh, yeah. amount in his lifetime. Actually, when he came amazing. over, when, when he came over, he had, I think, a heart attack on the ship when he came over. And, oh, my um, goodness. He just chanted his way through it. And when he arrived here, he had no place to go. He had no one to go to. He just, there he was with his little suitcase. And what he, what, what, what happened, his life story and everything is, is just phenomenal. And, um, you know, these, 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 what would you call them? These monks, these, they they are so dedicated to their belief in 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 the divine throughout them that that they actually they just know that everything's going to be okay. It's just amazing. And and yeah. but you know so so you know and and the same thing with Maharishi um, Mahesh Mahesh is that it Yogi. Um, Correct. He he was he was the same way. I mean, there was such well, a same thing. He arrived he arrived with a with a bedroll, you know, with a carpet roll, and that was yeah. it. He didn't know where he'd go, what he'd do, and etc. So, I mean, that yeah. kind of that kind of dedication to a belief is so profound and so pure. It's just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're human too, but but for the most part, they are so dedicated to that belief that I can see how. And and the one uh, the one that you were with and and on the staff for, is he was the laughing yogi, right? He was he he always he was always laughing. Yeah, uh, he was dubbed the giggling guru by the press. Because yeah. he was always giggling. He was always laughing. Yeah. Probably thought we were all. Right. I mean, when you 
when you stop and think coming from that kind of an atmosphere into into what everyday reality is for us, um, it is kind of funny how we stress out over stupidity and we are we are um, enslaved by credit cards and money and you know he, they just celebrate life and joy and and uh, they get away with it. I mean, not get away with it. I mean, he he you know he didn't have whole bunches of money piled someplace, but right. it was it was it was fascinating. So at some point, the the Beatles got involved with with this well let's go back to the beginning i mean they got together right and and they were they were um was it germany they 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 got their their they made their bones you know they sleep they slept in back rooms and um you know for very little they money wa- and washed, yeah <laughs> yes they, they washed right. in they the urinals yes <laughs> Waved away for a long time, and then eventually they became quite popular um, in Liverpool at the Cavern Club. Uh, they they appeared there 292 times at the Cavern Club, and uh, but they they their fame increased when they went to Germany and played there. So in I any think case, one- the Beatles the Beatles became famous. I don't. I don't, I don't think that's really the topic of our conversation today. But yes, they no. became famous. They've sold more records than any band, than any musical artist that has ever lived. And and they were together for eight years. So, you know, it's. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the things about your book that I am so impressed with, um, you you didn't just write the story, you 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 put links in it so that if if people wanted to scan the link they could listen to the music or they could see the video or they could see the I mean your book has so many of those links in it and and yeah it has unfortunately been. yeah I, I I read the book on my Kindle and I couldn't do that which is just as well because if I could have I'd still be reading your book um <laughs> there there were so many Yes the book has 130 QR codes and it has 170 very rare photos. So that's what Barbara's referring to when she says links. It has 130 QR codes in it. So you can go to videos, you can go to lyrics, you can go to audios. There's just so much material that it's pointing to from the book. That that was a labor of love for sure. I mean, was, yeah. was, there, was there something about this? That, that you, I mean, I know what it's like to have a need to do something, to be literally driven to write something. I, I, is that what happened with this? I mean, this is so obviously, so totally researched, so totally um, with material and everything else in it. This is not just a book. This is a tribute, and and it's so beautifully it done. Yeah, it also has like it has nine hundred and fifty endnotes. <laughs> oh, yeah. obviously, it's very well researched. So yes, this was uh, an obsession in a way, simply because okay. So I wrote my memoir, 
My memoir was Maharishi and Me, Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. And that was all about my journey with Maharishi. And also it had information about many of the celebrities that came while I was there uh, that came Uh to visit Maharishi and were devotees of Maharishi, including Donovan, Paul Horn, Doug Henning, uh, Alan Kaufman. um, Yeah, there were some names there that I, Uh, you know, I was surprised. Yeah, and uh, Deepak Chopra and mm-hmm. uh, John Gray and so many really famous people. Who, Andy Kaufman is the name of the comedian, not Alan. Andy Kaufman, who was in Taxi. So many of these uh, famous people who would show up. Mike Love, the lead singer of the, of the Beach Boys, and other Beach Boys as well. The Doors um, that were really into Transcendental Meditation. So I wrote about them in in my memoir. But then the story of the Beatles was so huge, I couldn't possibly fit it into the memoir. I I could only do like a couple chapters about the Beatles. So I said Uh to myself, I really want to tell the whole story about the Beatles. I want to tell the whole thing of how they were influenced by India, of what really happened when they were in Rishikesh, which no one has ever told the whole story until now. Uh And... So I wanted to just write a complete tell-all. And, and I told it through the songs. So each chapter is a song. Uh-huh. So I only went through, I only included the songs that had an Indian influence or a highly spiritual influence, you know, an influence of either psychedelics or an influence of Indian philosophy, of Indian music, Indian musicians, and Indian musical instruments. Anything that really was the theme of of Indian philosophy, I included in this book. And I explained the lyrics. I explained what instruments were being used when they were Indian instruments. And also I researched and found the Indian musicians, which... Really, those were very difficult to find, and I also was able to interview some of them, the Indian musicians that were with the Beatles or with George Harrison um, in his solo career. So, and because of my background in Indian philosophy, I was able to interpret the lyrics according to what really was intended by George Harrison or by John Lennon or by Paul. Who was it that did... I think I I don't know if it was the first one, but I mean I actually recognize this the song that was Norwegian Wood. Is that the first time that they used um, an instrument, or was that just one of the many? Uh, Norwegian Wood was the first time that the Beatles used an Indian instrument in their in in one of their songs, and it was a sitar that that uh-huh. George uh, used. He happened to. He found out about the sitar when they were filming Help, the film Help. The film Help has an Indian theme. It uses Indian music in the soundtrack. The soundtrack was made was made by Indian musicians. And there was also in the in the soundtrack of Help, there was a medley of Beatles songs that was played by Indian instruments. Very brief uh-huh. medley. And that was played during a scene that was supposed to be the Raja Rama restaurant, the restaurant scene. 
in help. Uh-huh. And the theme of the film, like I said, is Indian theme. The film was about thuggies. Thuggies were these itinerant murderers and thieves who lived in the like 18th and 19th century that would con, they were con jobs. They would con travelers and get their money from them and then they would murder them. They'd chop them into pieces actually. So they were these horrible, horrible thieves and murderers. And those were the, that was what they, what was chasing Ringo throughout the film were these thuggies. And the other thing about the thuggies is that they worshipped Kali. And Kali is a goddess of India. Uh-huh. And But then in the film, they made her into a mockery. They called her Kahili, and they made this huge statue of her and had it out on the ocean and... And they were talk, and they were all um, trying to get to Ringo to sacrifice him, do a blood sacrifice of Ringo. So it was this whole theme was about thuggies. It was about India, and it was it had horrible Indian stereotypes in <laughs> the entire film. Uh, it was really, uh, it was very, very damning towards Indians. I mean, it really was uh, very inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> well. But, you know, it was the 1960s. It wasn't 2023. Yeah. Is there something about the Indian instruments vibrationally that shifts consciousness? Oh, yes. I mean, Ravi Shankar, who was George Harrison's mentor, who taught him sitar, Uh uh, he explained to George that Indian music, the Indian ragas specifically, that they shift consciousness, that you can attain higher consciousness through playing those instruments and even through listening to the Indian music. It will take you into an altered state of consciousness, into a higher consciousness. And that's if it's done traditionally, not somebody trying to pluck a few notes like Norwegian would, I mean, Ravi Shankar was really not in favor of the way that Western musicians were trying to pluck the sitar. He likened it to as if a person would pick up a violin and pluck it or or try to use a bow on it and say, say, do you like this sound? (laughs) (laughs) He felt the same way about it. It was a very discordant sound to to Ravi Shankar to hear George Harrison plucking the sitar in Norwegian wood. Let's just put it that way. Well, I think it, it to me it was fascinating just how how involved they got in in the Indian music and the Indian instruments, and and it just Very much seemed so. it, it it just seemed almost as though playing the instrument was a form of prayer, and that's how. It felt as I was reading your book that the 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 people who were you know very that were artists on the different instruments it felt as though that it was a prayer and and you know you have to do it right and it's a lifetime's practice. It is, yeah. So, Ravi Shankar said himself, even though he was a master of the sitar, he claimed that he didn't know how to play it, you know, even though he'd been practicing it for 15 years or 20 years or however long he had been doing it by that time, probably more like 25 years, that he 
actually what he told George, he told George that you will not even begin to master the guitar until you've been playing it for 25 years. So it, it, it felt like in the, in the, in the book anyhow. And, um, I did read the other book on, um, here comes the sun on, that was George Harrison too. Um, right. He was, he was really very, very into the music. He, it it captured yeah. him. Very and I'm not so. sure that yeah. I, I'm not sure it captured the others as well. I don't think it captured Ringo at all. But but um you know, they all kind of went along with it and and it it but I was fascinated I, I actually went and listened to a whole bunch of Indian music and I did feel as though there was an energy there that you don't feel with a lot of um music that's on the radio and stuff like that today. You just don't you don't feel it. And that's and correct. yet yeah. and and so what what and and when I listened to the Indian music connected to the Beatles, that had a special I don't know, it just it, it kind of um created a buzz, I guess is the best way to put it. And, yeah, and, and uh, that's so, how that's how George would would put it. That's how George would describe it. Is like a buzz. Yeah, that's how, that's. It's interesting you use that phrase because George was saying the same thing. Um, now, the, don't discount Ringo on this though. Uh, Ringo did a uh, very interesting um, peace and love. He did a peace and love uh, song where he used uh, the Hindi expression for peace and love and where he had a tabla player, tabla girl, she's called tabla girl, and he invited her to come and play on the record. So it isn't just the other Beatles that are into all this stuff. Ringo is very much into it as well. And as a matter of fact, Maharishi praised Ringo as being the best meditator. Really? Maharishi said, and I quote Maharishi here, Maharishi said, Ringo is always in meditation, and he goes by feeling and heart. But as for the other Beatles, too much brain is in the way. <laughs> he said, okay. And he said, George, for, uh, as far as George, that George, uh, that this is his last life, uh-huh. and that he's very highly advanced. And he said about John Lennon, said that John must not give in to his weakness for women or it will ruin him. Oh, my. Well, John, I mean, he and Yoko Ono, you know, did, did they were all for peace, love, and whatever, Um they were all all for peace and love, but they were also taking heroin. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> that does that does make a difference. Yeah. Now, I I just think that that it's funny. I I think that they were meant to be together for a certain number of years, and plant their seeds, and then go their separate ways. And you know that's certainly what happened. They didn't. They didn't Maharishi, stay together. Maharishi told the Beatles when they when they were in India. Maharishi told the Beatles 
And this is another quote from Maharishi. Uh, if, you, if you do not continue your meditation practice, your group is going to break up. Uh, well, that's, well, yeah, that's, the, and, it, and they did. I'm just wondering, you know, they they weren't of a same mind when when they when they got together. They 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 all kind of, you know, came from the same type of background and stuff like that. And their music did bind them together a great deal. I think that the thing about the Beatles that that always impressed me was how you know they went from their 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 rock and roll whatever. And then they started to experiment with all sorts of different right. things, different ways of doing right. things. And and yeah. it was masterful how they they stretched themselves. You know, most artists much. have a, a genre and they stick to it, and the Beatles just wouldn't stick anywhere. They kept right. searching and, and stretching. And mm-hmm. um, it, it's, a, it's amazing. I mean, even today, I think, you know, there's... There's, there's what only one or two left. Ringo's still around, and and is it um, Paul? Paul. Paul Ringo is still and Paul. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 kind it's sad. I would have liked to have seen them continue together, but they went they went such different directions after a while. Right. And and I guess yeah. that's what growing up does. I mean, you know. Yeah, I guess so. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I've been in contact lately with people that I, you know, grew up with sort of, and it's like, whoa, I have nothing in common with them anymore. <laughs> exactly. So, so, um, so it's it's sort of like, you know, you you do grow and you grow in the directions you're meant to grow in, and and but while they were together, they created such magic. That's for sure. And I don't. And I don't think at the time they really realized the magic they were creating. They were just, I mean, it was it was a wonderful place for them, actually, because they had so much money, they could do anything they wanted to do. And it was a matter of, you know, finding some place to put this energy in, and to create. And, yeah. and George, yeah. you know, loved gardens. I mean, he was into gardens like crazy. <laughs> yeah, once he got Friar Park. That place that he yeah. got from Crisp, guy named Crisp. Yeah, he was a gardener, you know. He became a gardener. As a matter of fact, his son Danny didn't even realize that his father was famous or anything. He just thought of him as being a gardener. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> Young so cool. Baby. Danny, yeah. And then later he found out, oh, I guess he's a this famous beetle. <laughs> Now, now, did they did they become vegetarians or I, I couldn't okay, figure it so out. Okay, so Paul Paul became a vegetarian because of Heather, because of his wife, and George became a vegetarian because he was into Eastern philosophy and and Maharishi was a proponent of vegetarianism, and so was Bhaktivedanta. And so the spiritual path that George was on, yes, he became a vegetarian as well. Um, I'm not sure if John, oh, yeah, I think John and Yoko also were vegetarians. Uh, I don't know about Ringo, probably not. <laughs> so what is but the philosophy? But he might be a vegetarian now. 
Ringo Ringo is probably vegan now because he he got into this super super healthy lifestyle. Uh, once he was uh, more elderly, he became, you know, he's really into keeping fit. So I think he does yoga, uh, asanas, and he probably is a vegetarian now too. Imagine. And and the philosophy of vegetarianism and not eating meat and stuff like that is that is that a spiritual concept or is it a um, a health concept? I think it's different for different individuals. I think some people do it for reasons of health and other people do it for reasons of philosophy. It just to me, um, you know, you you. It, they went through such changes in their life. I mean, it was just, but of course, it was the 60s and the 70s, and <clears throat> that was a time of um, great upheaval in lots of ways. But um, their music Very was just so phenomenal. I, I mean, they, I think, I mean, I love, I, I, one of my favorites is Norwegian Wood, but, but, um, there are a couple of other ones that, that you know, um, the the My Sweet Lord is another favorite of mine. I mean, uh-huh. that, so My that Sweet one Lord I, was, so that particular song was one that George wrote. What he wanted to do is he wanted to do a, an Indian chant, uh-huh. but he thought if rather than doing a chant to Lord Krishna, who is the god that, George worshipped the Hindu deity, Lord Krishna, that he wanted to also bring in Christians. He wanted Christians uh-huh. to also chant the Hare Krishna mantra. So what he did was uh, he decided he would, uh, that when he composed the song, that it would be Hare Krishna, that they would be chanting Hare Krishna before they even realized what they were doing. So, yeah. and he included included in that not only Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, but he also included Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Maheshwara, Guru Sakshat Param Brahma, Tasmai Shri Guru Venamaha, which is from the Guru Gita. That was also in mm-hmm. that song. And that was the chant that Transcendental Meditation teachers chant whenever they teach someone to practice TM. Uh-huh. So that is part of what they call the puja ceremony. And that was a chant that George included in that. And so he also sang, my sweet Lord, you know, my sweet Lord. And so Christians would be singing that, thinking of Jesus, thinking of Christ, when they were singing, my sweet Lord, my sweet Lord. And if you ask the general population, who is my sweet Lord, they'll say, oh, that's Jesus. It wasn't Jesus at all, though. Or it could also be Jesus because George loved and respected and worshipped Christ. He he worshipped Jesus Christ. He also worshipped Lord Krishna, though. So that song is both, both Jesus and Lord Krishna that he's talking about. Uh, Now, when they went to spend time at an ashram, for those people who don't know what an ashram is, you know, just give a little explanation as to what an ashram is yeah so they went to rishikesh where maharishi had his ashram and an ashram (laughs) is a place where you go to study with a spiritual master from india 
it's a residential facility, very primitive usually. You know, it might have, you might have little huts or little bun- little bungalows, little barracks. And the one in Rishikesh was what where the Beatles went to. Uh, they've renamed that now Beatles Ashram. They call it the Beatles Ashram now. But uh, it was a place that we went to when we studied with Maharishi and became teachers of Transcendental Meditation. And that particular place was uh, built on a cliff overlooking the Ganges, about 150 feet up this cliff. Beautiful setting. And they built a few, it was basically concrete construction. You know, it was uh, concrete barracks and very primitive, concrete floor, uh, hot, thin mattress, uh, shelving, a chair, a table. That was it. (laughs) And uh, the Beatles were given a few other amenities when they were there because they were celebrities. They were given some other amenities, but not really very much. Better better beds, you know, something like that. Uh And also they had uh, indoor plumbing. They had bathrooms attached, ensuite bathrooms, whereas our toilets were outside and our wash basins were outside and our showers were outside. So we had to go outside to, to wash and bathe and, and go to the bathroom. But um, So the Beatles had a little bit of an upgrade there in their barracks, but certainly the barracks themselves weren't any better. They were just these concrete bungalows. But, uh, you know, I would think it, it gave them a great deal of um, privacy and peace because they probably weren't swamped for for autographs and stuff like that. that Correct. I would think. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I used to live Actually, in Westport. Actually, the people that were... Go ahead. The people that were there with the Beatles in India who were taking that teacher training course, most of them were elderly people. They barely even knew who the Beatles were. So it was no big deal for them to have the Beatles around. They didn't care. Well, yeah, I I used to live in, <clears throat> excuse me, Westport, Connecticut, and um, Paul Newman lived there. And, oh. um, you know, nobody really, you know, flipped out over him. Actually, I did meet him once kind of and called him a jerk. Um, there was a cheese shop, and and I was leaning over to get something out of a out of one of the freezers, and I got bumped and I got knocked into it, and I turned around because the guy had knocked me into it, and he helped me out, and he said, "I'm terribly sorry." I said, "You are a jerk," and it was Paul Newman, and he said, "Geez, nobody's called me that in a long time." And I realized who it was, and I said, well, then I'll be memorable. But you were a jerk. <laughs> and he apologized. <laughs> and then, like, you know, I wanted to get an autograph or something, and all I had was some brie in my hand, and there was no way I was going to ask him to sign my brie. So, but <laughs> Sign my brie. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, it, it's kind of like he lived there. He was one of the natives, and it was, you know, we, you know, it, it wasn't a big deal because Paul Newman lived there, and it was, you know, yeah, it's Paul Newman. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Not that you go up and talk to him or anything like that, but you also don't, Im- yeah. you know, you don't, you don't get into his face, I guess. <clears throat> so, 
So they had that luxury of being treated like everybody else to a great degree. And they had the freedom to walk around without screaming people coming in their faces and things like that. So I would think that that (laughs) that was probably one of the few places they could go where they were treated sort of normally. Exactly, yeah. Although Maharishi would fawn over them, that's the problem. Maharishi would always fawn over celebrities. He was a little bit of a uh, sycophant in a way. At least yeah. uh, Mia Farrow thought he was. So, yeah, uh, that was another one of the celebrities that was there, Mia Farrow at the time. The Beatles were there. And so was Mike Love, and so was uh, Paul Horn and a few others. So, yeah, they um, Maharishi, when, they, when the Beatles first arrived, in Rishikesh, he offered them that they would have their own dining room, and they said, "Oh no, we'll be, we'll eat with the other people." So they would just yeah. eat outside uh, in the in the dining area with the other students there. So they were commingling with the students, and there was no big deal. Uh, no, no big deal was made out of them. Um, well, I think when you're in that kind of environment, there's a whole um, different atmosphere. It's sort of like yeah. I'm here to study. I'm here to learn how to be a teacher. I'm here to, you know, spiritually adjust myself to a different element. And, and so, you know, you're not you're not going. Oh wow, it's a beetle. Um, right. It's it's. it's <laughs> I would have flunked that, but you know, I you know, and the pictures show them as disheveled and as dirty and and as relaxed and as casual. As as anybody, so that right. you probably, I mean, in some of those pictures, I didn't recognize the Beatles. Yeah. Because yeah. because they were, you know, hair and beards and everything, and <laughs> even even though I, you know, knew of the fact that they they, you know, if you t- if you gave me a picture and said, you know, pick the Beatles out, I wouldn't have been able to do it. <laughs> So, but but it it's just what a great place, however, to be creative. I mean, yeah, they uh, actually composed about forty songs while they were there in India, and many of their songs went on to the White Album, otherwise known uh-huh. as The Beatles. The name of the album was The Beatles. Actually, the nickname of the album is The White Album. So many of the songs were written there, including Dear Prudence, Child, Mother Nature's Son, uh, Your Blues, I'm So Tired, Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey, Revolution, uh, Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill, um, Sexy Steady, okay, so wait, wait. Why Don't We Do It, Who is, do it in the Road, Blackbird. You know, you're throwing uh, around a lot of names. Who were these people? Because cause they weren't making up the they were making up the name, but it represented a person. So who were you know who was Sexy Sadie and JoJo and Bungalow Bill and Dear Prudence? Who mm-hmm. were these people? Mm-hmm. Were they were they honoring them or were they making fun of them? Sometimes honoring, sometimes making fun. Uh, Dear Prudence honoring um that was prudence farrow mia farrow's sister a bungalow bill criticizing making fun of you know the guy who shot the tiger uh oh, bungalow yeah. bill and his name is rick rick cook he was the son of nancy cook 
Cook de Herrera. Uh, she was there taking the course, and she was a socialite from Los Angeles who was helping out Maharishi uh, with publicity. She was Maharishi's publicist also. And her son came to visit while she was taking the course there in Rishikesh. And he didn't come there to meditate or to take the course. He came there to kill tigers. He came there with his gun. And and he and his mom went out on safari. Okay, if you go on safari these days, you go in a jeep and you look at the animals. But back then, if you go on safari, you go to kill animals and to take home taxidermy trophies from India. So uh, as Lenin said, quote, this is a quote from Lenin, there was a guy who took a short break to go away and shoot a few poor tigers and then come back to commune with God. So what happened was they went out on a tiger hunt, him and his mom, and they went out on elephants. The elephants drove the tigers into the kill zone. You know, it was, a, it was actually very expensive to go out on one of these hunts. And then they went up onto a machan, which is a platform in a tree. And they saw the tiger and they killed the tiger. And then after they were done doing that, they went back to the ashram. And the first place they went to was Maharishi's bungalow. So they could brag about their exploits of killing a tiger. Two, Maharishi, who was a vegetarian Hindu, you know, yogi, as if he would be interested in a tiger kill. So as, yeah. uh, as Nancy, as the mom, Nancy, was describing the tiger kill in great detail to Maharishi, he was glaring at her. And Rick could tell that he was not very impressed and that he was very upset about it. So Rick said, well, was it a, was it a sin you know, for me to kill a tiger? And Maharishi said, well, will you ever kill one again? And he said, I don't think I ever will. And in fact, Rick never did. After that one, after that happened in India, he became a vegetarian. He uh, became a photographer who took pictures of animals for National Geographic. And he never shot another tiger. So the lyrics explain in great detail this, this tiger hunt. It says in the lyrics, you know, hey, Bungalow Bill, what did you kill? And then it says he went out tiger hunting with his elephant and gun. In case of accident, oh. he always took his mom. He's the all-American oh bullet-headed Saxon mother's son. And then um, and, and one, th- one, one thing also that happened when they were talking to Maharishi about the tiger hunt uh-huh. is that John Lennon piped in in the middle of it and he said, well, isn't that rather life-destructive? And that was a phrase that Maharishi used to always use, like life-destructive, life-damaging, life-destructive, life-supporting, life-supportive. He would talk about actions as either being life-destructive or life-supporting actions. So you could tell that how influenced John Lennon was by Maharishi, or he wouldn't be using one of Maharishi's catchphrases. Uh And then also in the middle of it, Nancy, the mother, was, the mom, was trying to defend herself. And she said, well, Maharishi, it was either the tiger or, or us, <clears throat> which was ridiculous. Yeah, right. <laughs> so let me continue with the lyrics here for a minute. It says, deep in the jungle where the mighty tiger lies, 
Bill and his elephants were taken by surprise. So Captain Marvel zapped in right between the eyes. By the way, they killed the, that's where they killed the tiger, right between the eyes. Uh, the children, okay, okay, here it goes on. The children asked him if to kill was not a sin. Not when he looked so fierce, his mother butted in. If looks could kill, it would have been us instead of him. All the children sing, hey, Bungalow Bill, what did you kill? So that wow. described in great detail everything that happened that day with the with the Bungalow Bill kill and the and what happened with the tiger and the mother and what she said. You know, not when he looked so fierce and the mother butted in. Oh, wow. Because huh? she said it was Very. either the tiger or us. <laughs> now, um... Was it Prudence that 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 had the um, issue with Maharishi, or or was it um, her sister Mia? Sister Mia. Prudence okay. was a, a very devoted to meditation. She had learned meditation a couple of years previously, and so as soon as she got to the ashram, she went in her room and didn't ever want to come out. She just wanted to meditate all the time. She was completely obsessed with it. And in fact, Prudence, because of the fact that she had been taking drugs and alcohol and she was an alcoholic and she was a drug addict and and she was really a mess when she was a teenager, she had had a psychotic breakdown. She had actually been in a mental institution for a while before she went to India. Uh And um, unfortunately, when she was in India and she was, just meditating day and night, day and night. She actually had a, another psychotic episode in India, which was really very dramatic. And they had to, in fact, uh, they had to have guards guarding her door day and night. And Maharishi, before that happened, Maharishi asked John and George to just kind of look in on her. He put them in a discussion group together. He asked them to sort of take care of her, and uh-huh. um, and they wrote that song, Dear Prudence, Won't You Come Out to Play? Because they couldn't get her to come out of her room, you see. Um, she was like in a catatonic state, and all the Beatles tried to get her, tried to persuade her to come out of her room, and she wouldn't. And so they, they composed this song, or John composed a song, Won't you come out to play, greet the brand new day. The sun is up, the sky is blue, it's beautiful, and so are you. Open up your eyes, see the sunny skies. The wind is low, the birds will sing that you are part of everything. Dear Prudence, won't you open up your eyes, look around, round, round. Let me see you smile like a little child. The clouds will be a daisy chain, let let me see you smile again. Dear Prudence, won't you let me see you smile. So he composed that song about her state, that she wouldn't open up, up her eyes even though they were trying to persuade her. And wow. she never heard them sing that song. They didn't. The legend is that they sang that song to her in India, but they never did. They sang, what they did is they, they burst into her room and they sang Obladi Oblada and they sang Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But they never sang that specific song to her. But as George uh, was leaving India in a huff with John, uh, George passed her a note that said that John had written a song about her. And about a year later, uh, her mom, Maureen O'Sullivan, famous actress, 
she uh, played the song for Prudence, and Prudence really loved it. She had been she had had trepidation when she heard that John had written a song about her. She was afraid that it would make fun of her, but in fact, she loved the song. She thought it was very sweet, so that was a happy oh, thing. And in fact, Prudence had a happy ending too. She became very well. What happened was. They took her to Maharishi's bungalow every day for the remainder of the time that she was there in India. And he did something with her. He healed her. And she, by the end of the course, she was great. She was having uh, lunch with everyone, talking to everyone, uh, joking around, just completely different, total personality reversal, you know, suddenly she was in great health, physical, mental, everything kind of health, and has been wow. ever since. And in fact, she is a Sanskrit scholar, she's a yoga teacher, she has a lovely family, you know, she's married to a lovely guy that I knew, I knew, I knew her and her husband, you know, so and she had a happy ending. What can I say? It was good. Uh, Mia that Farrell is, so is the one cool. that Maharishi her sister Mia is the one that Maharishi made a pass at, not Prudence. Okay, well, um, you know, I, I almost almost every spiritual guru um, at one point in time or another has 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 had a moment of being human. And you know, and and I think they're they're um, almost crucified for it. I mean, I, I'm not yeah. saying it's right, but but yeah. but I am I am I, I do think that people um, they're here like all the rest of us to to learn to grow to be human to to spread love joy and whatever. But but I you know they all they they all have slips. I mean, that's yeah. Of course, if I if I if I worshipped somebody, literally worshipped somebody, and they suddenly made a pass at me, I think I would be disillusioned, and and I think that's that yeah. that's why. The, but but in looking back at it, I'm thinking, oh come on, you know. But but I guess that they they looked upon him as so pure and so holy that. Yeah. that you know, making a pass was the worst thing in the world he could do, aside from, you know, eating a rare hamburger and smoking. <laughs> rare hamburger yeah. really so sounds Beatles, good. Beatles had, <laughs> Beatles had great expectations. What can you say? You know, they were that character from Dickens. Yeah, they had great. They had high expectations of Maharishi. Very unrealistic expectations. And as a result of that, they got heavily disillusioned when he did not meet their expectations. So John and George, who stayed the longest in India, got disillusioned and they left in a big huff. Uh, Ringo and Paul were long gone by that time. Ringo stayed for about a week there. He didn't stay very long because he had a, mainly because he had a six-month-old child at home. And his wife was with him. (laughs) You know, his (laughs) wife was there with him and she hated the bugs in India. She couldn't stand the bugs. There was a legend that one fly kept kept her hostage for hours until Ringo could return to the bungalow and kill it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there were centipedes, there were millipedes, there were scorpions, there was all kinds of things in the jungle. It's a jungle. 
and she didn't like the bugs, and he didn't couldn't handle the food. He had brought Ringo had brought an entire suitcase of Heinz beans with him, so he have oh my to God. eat. But even then, yeah, he had a whole suitcase of Heinz beans. At least that's what he claimed. So uh, yeah, they, he couldn't handle the food. He had had peritonitis as a child. So that okay. didn't work out very well for them. They they only stayed about a week. And then Paul left after about a month. He was there with Jane Asher, and Jane Asher had a theatrical commitment. She was an actress back in London, uh-huh. so they had to leave. They left after about a month. And then John and George stayed for two months, and they left in a huff on April 10th. Yeah, and, and I think I, I I forget whose comment it was, but, you know, I know a past when I see one, you know. <laughs> it was like, that was Mia. That was Mia. Yeah. I, I know a past from a puja. I know the <laughs> difference between a past and a puja. Um, that was Mia. And also she said another time, she said, I know a past when I see one. Um, and then she well, told yeah, Ned he, Wynn. Ned Wynn was one of my lovers, actually. He was the uh, Ed Wynn's grandson and Keenan Wynn's uh-huh. son. These are old-time actors, in case you know you all yeah. don't know who so that I, is. But I know Ned who you're is, talking about. Screen, screenwriter, and he um, he was my lover. And and when Mia came back from India, she immediately contacted Ned because they were childhood friends, and Ned was one of Maharishi's disciples. Uh-huh. And so she contacted Ned, and she said, "This is what happened." And Ned didn't believe her. None of us believed it. You know, we didn't believe it that would have happened. And Ned didn't believe her. And and she said, Ned, don't you think I know when a man when a man wants to f me? Yeah. Don't you think I know? And uh, so that kind of took him aback. And eventually, he he found out that she was telling the truth. And the reason he found out is because because the other women who came back from being with Maharishi, came to see Ned, uh, specifically Judith Bork, who wrote the book uh, Robes of Silk, Feet of Clay. That was the uh-huh. book that Judith wrote about her love affair with Maharishi. And then there was another woman who um, I hesitate to give her real name because she doesn't want people to know who she is. And she came back and told Ned and gave him all the nitty-gritty details of her love affair that she had with Maharishi. And then finally, Neil believed them, you know, when there were three already three women at that point. And, you know, I, I personally know or know of 15 different women that Maharishi either made a pass at or had sex with. Uh-huh. So there were a lot of women, and one of them was Teresa Olson, and she has now finally come out of the closet and told me I should and could use her name. I've been keeping her secret for decades. Teresa Olson was a legend. She's a legend in the TM organization. She uh-huh. was a child when Maharishi came first came to the United States and stayed in their home, her her childhood home. And um, wow. her mom, Helena Olson, wrote a book called Hermit in the House. And Teresa and Maharishi was with, was with them. He made a pass at her, more than a pass. It was 
I can't really even, I wouldn't even say what happened over the airwaves. Uh-huh. I couldn't possibly tell the, the full story in this podcast. But no. Yes, he made a pass at Teresa, and she was age 19 at the time. At least I, at least there's no underage people that I know of them on. She made a pass at. But it was very highly inappropriate what she did with Teresa. So in any case, well, yes, he made a pass at various women. Linda Pierce is another one who came out and, and told her story. Of she had an affair with Maharishi um, while she was in India. And, in fact, well, she came up to me one day and told me about it. Wow. Those are just a few well, that's just another there part were... of being human. You know, I mean, yes. when, when you think of... of what is expected of them. Right. Um, nobody, you know, you put somebody on a pedestal high enough, they're going to fall off. Exactly. And, 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 and they do. <clears throat> but yeah. you can't, I, I don't think you can blame them for being human. I mean. Not really. So, so, so okay, so, so they left in a huff. And, yeah, and, did, and, when they, they, and, and just, to, just to address what you just said, when they came back, uh, John said to Paul, uh, well, actually, Paul said, well, why did you, why'd you leave? What happened? And John said, well, he was making a pass at the, of, that the girl from, uh, well, she was a girl from Brooklyn. Uh-huh. He said he made a pass at the Mia Farrow look-alike, this girl, and her name is uh-huh. Rosalind. So she was the one that Maharishi made a pass at at the time that the Beatles were there. And so uh, Paul, uh, John said that uh, that he made a pass at her, and, and Paul said, so what? Yeah. that was and Paul's answer was, so what? And John said, well, we can't go following that. He's just an old lech like everybody else. So Paul, in other words, he didn't think it was such a big deal. In fact, Paul said, well, well, you know, what, was there, there wasn't any vow or celibacy or was there? And in uh-huh. fact, Paul didn't realize that actually there was. Paul didn't know that Maharishi claimed himself to be Bal Brahmachari. As a matter of fact, in his passport, on his passport, which is in my book, there's a picture of his passport right there in my book, The Inner Light. And on the passport, it's signed, Bal Brahmachari Mahesh Yogi. Bal Brahmachari means life celibate. Life celibate. Oh, yeah, well. So he claimed to be a life celibate. And that's the reason why so many of his disciples thought that he was a hypocrite. It's because he claimed himself to be life celibate. But you know, he was the messenger. It, it, it was the message that was important. I have to agree with you, Barbara. I agree. I mean, look at Jesus. There was a messenger that got. We killed him, but we saved yeah. his message. <laughs> I mean, you know, I know what humanity doesn't yeah. treat messengers too well these well ever. Probably but not. No. of the 
of the Beatles, and there were four of them, and so so much music, so much creativity happened. Did they all write music, or was it just you know a couple of them? And that you know, I, I mean, where was was the creativity evenly distributed? I guess is best best way to say it. Well, as far as creativity, raw creativity, I think it was very, very, very much evenly distributed amongst the Beatles. However, the great songwriting team was Lennon and McCartney, with Paul and John. They were the great songwriters, the genius songwriters of the group. Uh, George also wrote some lovely songs. Some, some of the best songs of the Beatles were written by George as well. For example, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, here comes the sun, something. Yeah. You know, some of those particular ones, especially, are some of the greatest songs ever written. So, in fact, George was also a great songwriter. Yeah, but his songs didn't really, you didn't really see his talent until they were broken up, and then you realized that he had the talent. That's because he had uh, kept, um, he had been writing songs all along, but they only put one on each album, one or two, you know. Uh And unfortunately, that was a great deal of frustration for George. So when he was finally freed, I mean, he was more than happy that the Beatles split up because then he was free to go ahead and have an entire solo career. And... When those songs started to come out, it was, you know, there were hundreds of them that he had. There was a large backlog of songs that uh-huh. he had written. And then they, they, he started making albums, lots of albums. He sold a lot of records. It seems that that, that large estate that he had was, was very sparsely um I guess decorated. I mean, did did he keep everything very very um, sparse? I don't I don't want to say primitive because an estate that big is not primitive, but it mostly you know there were carpets on the floor and stuff like that, and it wasn't you know I'd go on a shopping spree you know and you know with unlimited <laughs> money, Lord knows what I could have done, but he kept it. He kept Maybe it very hard. simple. He was his decorator. <laughs> oh my God! I have a friend who was a uh, um, an architect, but she also she helped to design the um, one of the palaces in Brunei. And after it was built, they were given a private jet, and they were sent all over the world to buy furniture and horses and and everything and they had someone with them with a checkbook and they they would go to the Waterford factory and and buy chandeliers and you know I mean it was just it was she said it was just the most amazing experience of her life there was of course she wasn't getting anything but um yeah. to be able to just you know they close the factory down so you can walk through it and then you pick 15 or 20 of the you know things and then you move on to somewhere else to pick up a racehorse or you know so <laughs> with it, it what surprises me really majorly is that they 
they they were so young they 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 earned a tremendous amount of money and so often you know uh groups like that are mismanaged and the manager gets most of the money and they they don't get any and yet they all ended up really wealthy uh yes um I don't know the details about the business side of the Beatles. I do know that there were some very bad business decisions made, including by Brian Epstein. Uh I do know that their entire catalog of music ended up being owned by Michael Jackson at one point. Yeah. I also know that Paul McCartney bought it back. And that's pretty much all I know about the Beatles business. I, I just am not privy to all that information. You can read about it. There's been, been many books written about it. But um, so, yes, there's a lot of mismanagement with the Beatles money. But, yes, they, they made a decent living. You know, they, they did well for themselves. They all did well for themselves. But they could have done a lot more, better. They could have been much more fabulously wealthy. Uh, Paul is the only one that ended up with tremendous wealth he's he's the rich one of the richest people on earth but that's because he bought the Beatles catalog back oh yeah and and he made some other good business decisions because he was being advised by uh Eastman who was Linda's uh father who founded Kodak Eastman Kodak yeah I kind of I wondered about that because so many Musicians, you know, while they're while they're very famous, they they end up having to sing for their supper, um, and exactly. the Beatles didn't have to. The Beatles were able to, you know, go their own way, so to speak, and 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 did. I mean, uh, um, 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 I'm, I'm Ringo, not Ringo, but John and John and Yoko, right? Yeah. No. Okay. I mean, they. I mean, the apartment where they lived was was exceedingly expensive, and and what they were trying to do. I mean, they were out for, and yes, they took stimulants, but but you know they they had they had a. Um, the, their agenda was appropriate. They they may not have been you know quite so. I mean, if if they were using heroin and stuff like that, that does kind of put things in question a little bit. But they were out for peace, you know. They they really yeah. They, they had a good message. More. They had a wonderful message. Yeah, give peace a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, they had a wonderful message. It just it, it it it's really when you see where they were at the height of their career. And and the you know they broke up and they all went their separate ways and they all had you know different um, different outcomes you know and, and we're still waiting on some obviously but but it, it's sort of like what might have been you know you kind of it's it's sort of like you always wanted to see Sunny Sunny and Cher together again you know yeah and and, and the same with the, the Beatles. Absolutely. People won so much for them to get back together. The only time they ever did was up on the roof of, of uh, Abbey Road, up there on the roof, the roof, roof concert, and that was it. Get back. And then they broke up after that, very soon after that. 
Did they break up as friends, or did they, you know, kind of not? I, I know I have one to of say, them did Yeah? I have to say that George was very unhappy about the way he was being treated by Paul McCartney. He got wow. no respect from Paul. And, in fact, if you watch the Get Back film, Peter Jackson's film, yeah. the three-hour extravaganza, if you watch his film, or three-part extravaganza, it's more like six hours, um, you'll see that there's contentious, be- contention between mainly George and Paul, that Paul really does not treat him with respect, and neither does John. John treated uh, patronizing, he was patronizing towards George, patting him on the head, you know, good little boy, you know, kind of thing. Wow. And uh, and you do know that we're the Beatles. He's trying to pitch his song, I Me Mine. Uh-huh. And John said, and they're making fun of it because it's like a waltz because it's in three, four time, you know. It's got yeah. the beat. It's a waltz. And they're making fun of it. And, no, yeah, well, you do know we're the Beatles, right? I mean, <laughs> so well, they, obviously they just did. That song went on to be very big and very popular, but they didn't recognize that. They didn't. They didn't value um, George. I think. I. I mean, I think they got off on being famous, but I don't think they ever realized how iconic they they were going to become. I know that. I. I don't know who wrote it for um, Ringo, but there was a. A lullaby that they wrote for him that is just the sweetest lullaby um, ever. And it's, you know, I'll dream a dream for me, you dream a dream for you. And it was it was a lullaby. And it, it's a beautiful lullaby. But um, it, it just, it, it's kind of like there was so much magic there. There was so much um, energy that, that they were drawing from and, and you have to think that especially when they they were in India <clears throat> the music had to take them to another level of creativity so that things flowed through them so much easier and so so much better than had they been you know in, in England on Abbey Road or, or in New York City or wherever it's just a, yeah. a different environment and a different creative energy that was coming out of it all very much so. Um, Paul Horn commented on that, on how they had the time and the space to be most creative in that environment, in Rishikesh, where there was no distractions, there was no paparazzi. It was uh, Maharishi really made a an environment where they their creativity could truly flow. Um, he made sure that all the gates were guarded. No one could get in. The, you know, the reporters went nuts. They wouldn't tried so hard to get in, but Maharishi just made sure he, he actually hired Gurkhas to guard the gates. And he sent the brahmacharis to grab them out of the trees when they were trying to take photos. So that's the reason why the Beatles were left alone and they could thrive. And they would go up on the roof of their bungalow and write songs. Uh, when they first got there, you know, Paul started writing songs and he started talking about uh, the next album. And he was always the business mind, the businessman of the four. 
And George snapped at him and he said, we're not blipping here to do, we're not effing here to do music, to do the next album. We're here to meditate. And he was all up in arms about it. And then not too long after that, George was found up on the roof of his bungalow with a, an organ that he brought up there. And he was giving a concert every day to 20-somethings up on the roof. So that was pretty funny. That was ironic. So they was all that the ended harmonium? up writing lots was of music Was that the harmonium there. they were talking about? It was actually an organ. Uh, it, was, uh, it was bigger than a harmonium. It was an organ. There's a picture of it in my book, The Inner Light. And also it's in my other book, Maharishi and Me. I have that same picture in both books of him up on the rooftop playing the organ. Wow. What a time In general, a harmonium is usually quite a small instrument. It's just a box on the ground oh. that uh, they play when they're doing bhajans. The organ is bigger than that. But it's also called a harmonium. Wow. When <clears throat> Now, were you ever, you know, actually there present when the Beatles were there too? No, I never met the Beatles. Wow. What, what, you, you know, you, you think of the whole thing. And I keep thinking of just <clears throat> the creative energy that must have been there. It just must have been. Yes. Did you, were you doing anything creative at the time, or were you more into just the meditation and being trained? Well, interestingly enough, um, <clears throat> I was on Maharishi's staff, and how I ended up even being on his staff was because I was, I'm an artist. And and it was on my, well, actually, the first time I met Maharishi, I gave him a painting that I had done of him, and I handed the painting to him. And then when I was in India, Maharishi, one night, it was we were all up on the, the roof of his bungalow, and we were sitting there in the moonlight, and Maharishi was looking up at the trees, and he used an analogy to talk about higher states of consciousness from the vision of the trees. From the, it looked like gold-tipped trees because the lights of, on the ashram were shining on the trees. So he was talking about that, and he was using this analogy. And then Jerry Jarvis, who was sitting next to me, he said, somebody should make a painting of that. Hint, hint. You know, he didn't say hint, hint, but yeah. that's what he said. He knew I was an artist. So I did. I, I made a drawing of it, and I showed it to Maharishi. And then he said, oh, what it is, please explain. So I, I told him about what it was and, you know, that, that this is what he'd been talking about the night before. And then he said, oh, but we should have, there should be people in the, you know, picture. So then uh-huh. yeah, I did. I tried, to put, I tried to put people in the picture and showed it to him. And then he said, oh, it should be bigger. And so I made it bigger. And then, then I went back to him. And then he said, oh, and I should not be lying down. I should be sitting up. And so I went back and changed it again. And so, all right. So then I went through like 20, 20 incarnations of the picture. And that went on for years. And finally, in 1971, I, I was pretty much finished this painting. It ended up not just being a picture, but a whole painting with all these pictures. And, and he says, oh, but I want to recognize everyone. 
And then I showed it to him, you know, after having tried to figure out what everybody looked like. And then I made all the people look like themselves and went back to him. And then he said, oh, should be a better likeness of so-and-so. And And so this went on and on and on and on and on and on. And finally, um, in about 1971, I had a what I thought was finished. And, of course, he criticized it and said it should be this, it should be that. So, but I did. I never really went on anymore with it. But I did put that picture in my book, in my memoir, the book Maharishi uh, and Me: Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. That particular f- picture, that painting that I did, was in that book. Uh-huh. But, but uh, not only did I do that painting, I started on another p- picture, was called was the Holy Tradition, a picture of the all the masters of the Holy Tradition. And so I actually started designing that picture, and I did many, many sketches of that. And Maharishi dubbed me Susan the Artist. He used to call me Susan the Artist. So I did work on that painting, and then I also worked in the art department. I I worked on creating, uh, doing graphic design for various publications of the TM organization. And that was one of the jobs I had when I was on the international staff. I worked in the art department. And I also did illustrations for one of the, there was a children's book curriculum for children, and I worked on those illustrations as well. Who um, did the cover of your book? Well, interestingly enough, The Inner Light, How India Influenced the Beatles, the collage on the cover was done by me. I actually created that collage, and I'm very proud of it. It really is. It's a beautiful cover. I think it's fantastic. It's got the Taj Mahal in the background. It's got all these spiritual masters, um, and it's got the Beatles and their girlfriends, and then it's got the Indian musicians. And it's a nod to Sgt. Pepper. It looks like the Sgt. Pepper album, but only a spiritual version of the Sgt. Pepper album with all the (laughs) spiritual people in it. And it's got Lakshmi in the front, who's the goddess of wealth, and she's also front and center on Sgt. Pepper. So this is a total nod to the Sgt. Pepper cover. Gotcha. It, it reminds me a little. Uh, <clears throat> it, it is beautiful. I, I, you know, I wondered if that was your work or not. Um, it reminds me a little bit of when somebody had a birthday party or a birthday, and uh, <clears throat> I guess it was it was Mia Farrell, I think, that had the birthday that uh, she was sitting with a crown on her head and everything, and, and yeah. apparently she, she felt rather stupid. Um, yeah. But, you know, his way of life was so much simpler than everybody else's that what <laughs> gave him pleasure, um, you know, people kind of looked upon as, you know, isn't that kind of childish and yeah. I think <clears throat> I think while well a brilliant man and obviously a, a channel on some level for for great wisdom um, that there was a childness quality to him that was yes, that was um, quite I guess, I guess endearing I guess it's a better way to absolutely. put it absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, very endearing. He was very childlike, and he had this amazing vibration. 
when you were around him, you felt these waves of, I shouldn't say you, I should say I. When I was around him, I felt these waves of bliss coming from him, waves of love. He had this amazing love vibration, and so you wanted to get near him all the time. So those of us who are on staff, we were also always competing fiercely with each other to try to get into his room and get close to him because we were, we were addicted to, I was addicted to this kind of divine love vibration that he was spreading that you could receive by osmosis, basically. It was very uh, compelling and very uh, enticing. And you could just feel this charismatic energy. It was more than charisma, though. It was bliss. You could feel waves of bliss coming from him. Uh It was very powerful. Do you think in a way... It was the same kind of energy a baby or a child has before they learn about how rough life can be. Yeah, um, in a way it is. It's childlike, yes. Innocence. That same innocence and purity that, that um, we lose as the older we get, the more protective we become of ourselves and our inner qualities. And I think that's what most children are like. And then they're taught to be protective and secretive and you know and everything and out of curiosity, I don't know that much about his life before his celebrity um How did he grow up? I mean, was he um a kid on the street was he trained to become um a a a yogi or or is this something he fell into i mean you know, we see him as a as a master. I mean, I know a little bit about um, the Hare Krishna guru because I read his book. But but how about how about um, Maharishis? I mean, what was his childhood like? I mean, you must know some of of his background before he became famous. So uh, he was, I think. A- ordinary kind of Indian guy and grew uh-huh. up in not very, certainly not a rich family. He grew up in a hut somewhere, you know, small place. And he uh, he always tells the story of when he met his guru, you know, how, how that changed him. He was a, really he was in college probably. He was, he was in school. And uh, during breaks in school, sometimes his uncle would take him to visit spiritual masters. So this time they went and visited Brahmananda Saraswati and they managed to somehow get in the door and go upstairs onto the top of the roof where he was holding audience. And and so they were there and it was all dark and they couldn't see him. And then all of a sudden a light, a car headlight passed down the road and a kind of flash of light came onto the face of this great saint, Pramananda Saraswati. And Maharishi immediately just, when he saw that face, he just surrendered. He just melted. And uh-huh. uh, then later that evening, he asked him if he could become his disciple. And, and he was told that he should go back and finish college and then come to him. So he did. He went back and finished college, and then he went to the ashram of, of Brahmananda Saraswati. He was 
a very famous saint in India. He was one of the four main leaders of the Hindu religion. There's one east, west, north, south. They're called Shankaracharyas. Uh-huh. And each of them is in, is invested with uh, with leading the Hindu religion for that quarter of the Indian population. So his was the, in the north, and that's where he went to study with him uh, in Jyotir Mutt, in, which is in the Himalayas. And also he had a summer residence in Allahabad. And that's where Maharishi studied with him, and he really he became his secretary. He was doing very financial things for him and that sort of thing, correspondence and financial matters is what he did. He worked for him. Hmm. <clears throat> but but you know he became a kind of person you expect could walk on water. Um, I mean, yeah, he was. In the, that that term Maharishi was not an official title. One of some of his disciples gave him that title, and it kind of stuck. He never, you know, it isn't like anybody gave him a a special <laughs> dispensation of some kind or anything. And 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 he was not. By the way, he wasn't a Brahmin. He was not of the highest caste, so he couldn't become a Swami. Uh, in India, in order to become what they call a swami and wear the orange robes, you have to be a Brahmin caste. And Maharishi ah. was not a Brahmin caste. He was a lower caste person. He was of the, um, Vi- uh, Var- I forget the name of the caste. It's, it's people who are in business. Business. Okay. That's the caste. It's not warriors. It's not learned people. It's not untouchables. It's not servants. It's a cast for people who are in business. They're, uh, uh, they are like merchants, merchant class. Well, that's why he always his, wore the white robes rather than the rather than the orange robes. It's because he couldn't he, he couldn't be initiated as a swami. Swami is someone from the Shankaracharya order, which he couldn't be. He wasn't the right cast. So, so his his title though was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and is no, his yogi title a was title? Maharishi. His his Ma, Maharishi was a title that one of his disciples conferred upon him. And okay. Mahesh was his family name. Mahesh is his family name, and Yogi is just Yogi. He's a Yogi. In other words, he, he's a he's someone who has accomplished. Yoga. Yoga means union. Union of the individual spirit with universal spirit. But yoga. So what? Yoga. So what? What did those who were studying with him call him? Maharishi. Okay. We address him. We say Maharishi. Say Maharishi. May I ask you a question? Wow. It's a whole other. it's a whole other culture. It's a whole other way of studying. Now, you you studied with him to become uh, a teacher of TM. Were That's the correct. Beatles I also, studied. Were the Beatles doing the same thing? Were they studying with him to become teachers? Okay, so when they arrived in India, so when they arrived in India, Somebody I know, a fellow I know, asked George, so are you going to become teachers? 
And George said, well, maybe we might become teachers. So they went there to study with Maharishi. They didn't really go there to become TM teachers because they weren't experienced enough. They, they had only just learned Transcendental Meditation a few months before. They had, they had learned TM in August of 1967, and then they went to India in February of 1968. So it was only a few months after they first learned TM that they ended up in India with Maharishi, and that's because Maharishi invited them to come to India. They were going to come right after they learned, actually, but because Brian Epstein died on August 27th of 1967, they were floundering about without a manager, trying to figure out what the heck to do with themselves. Paul sort of took a leadership role and got them involved with his project, which was Magical Mystery Tour. He conceived uh-huh. of this film that he wanted to make. And so he got the other Beatles involved with that. And he was afraid that if he didn't do that and didn't do that quickly, that their band would break up because they had no direction to go in. Uh-huh. So Paul was always the business-minded one, and he kept the band together, basically. In fact, he kept them together for much longer than probably would have happened if he hadn't been so trying, trying so hard to keep them together. So, um, so they worked on that project, and then when they were finished with that, then they went to India later in 1968. So uh, <clears throat> when, you, when you say they were studying with him, is that sort of, I mean, it's not like grade school and junior high and high school and stuff like that. Is it a matter of just studying spirituality? What, what were they studying? Okay. So they were there. Um, like I said, Ringo was there for about a week and Paul was there for about a month and John and George were there for two months. And they were doing, they were following the same program as all the people that were there. And what they were doing is they were meditating, and the meditations were getting longer and longer and longer as they stayed there longer. And uh, John and George got up to eight hours a day in meditation. They got up to that, that many hours. And they were competing each, each, with each other to, you know, who's going to meditate the longest, who's going to get cosmic, uh, who's going to get cosmic <laughs> meaning, get into cosmic consciousness, who's going to do it first, who's going to meditate more so they were competing and uh also they were going to lectures with maharishi so maharishi would give lectures twice a day and then once there was more meditation and less lecturing maharishi only gave lectures once a day and then for a few days right in the deepest part of the long meditation program they went into meditation and they didn't leave their rooms so what they would do is they would leave a menu outside the door every day as to they would they would tick off on the menu what exactly they would uh, they wanted for lunch or dinner or whatever, and then the meals would be delivered to their doors. So during wow. that long long meditation period, that's when John wrote the songs "I'm So Tired" and "Your Blues," because he was meditating all the time. And he was becoming suicidal from meditating so much. And also, wow. he was so tired because he couldn't sleep at night. He was getting so much deep meditation that 
it was hard to sleep at night. And that was true on these long meditation courses that we used to go on. Uh, we would become so fr- refreshed from meditating so much all day that we couldn't sleep at night. So I'm so tired, which John Lennon wrote, was about that. And your blues was about him becoming suicidal during that period. Wow. So, so the purpose of all of this is to meet God, to, to get to nirvana. Um, to reach higher states of consciousness, to experience samadhi. Samadhi means evenness of mind, stillness of body. Okay. Now, you travel around the country teaching meditation, partially. I mean, I know that's something you do. What kind of meditation is it that you teach? All right, so I don't teach TM anymore. I was a TM teacher from 1970 till 1989, and then I started teaching a different form of meditation because I like this other form of meditation better. So I teach another method that's called divine revelation, and that, uh, so I don't teach TM or transcendental meditation, but I do recommend it. It's a very good uh-huh. meditation practice, and anyone can learn it, and anyone can do it, and it's very easy to do just a matter of sitting down and getting comfortable and closing your eyes and using the mantra. So it's very simple. It's a very simple practice, and, it's, and it works. It's really very effective. I mean, I only had fantastic experiences with Transcendental Meditation personally. That's why I became a TM teacher. And, uh-huh. uh, but then, I, you know, I haven't done it for uh, quite a while. I, I like this other method better. Well, it's just, you know, to me, and and it's something that that I I do talk a lot about because, I mean, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people on the radio, and for every person who is in some form of spiritual teaching or or sharing or whatever, everybody, everybody without fail, suggests that, that if, if you're really on this journey that you need to you need to be able to meditate. You need a form of meditation of some sort. You need you need to have a a routine of meditation in order to get to where you need to be. And and you know, it's it's always phenomenal to me. I mean, even people that, that I mean are just and I shouldn't say just, even people who are just ex- who are extremely creative even they say the best way to 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 trigger that creativity to open that portal the, of the flow of energy is to meditate and people that you wouldn't I, expect to say meditate they all do <laughs> uh, I would agree with all those people Meditation, I I personally am a big fan of meditation. I believe meditation is the panacea of all ills. I believe that oh, yeah. it's the answer to all problems. And, and you know, I think the thing that, that, that to, to so many people don't realize that, that for, for me, um, and, and I can only speak for me, but for me, meditation is listening, not talking, but listening. And, um, and yes, that's that's and, my definition. Also, of meditation would be to get get quiet, 
get into a state of deep relaxation and peace and to listen to the still small voice within, if you wish, or to receive divine messages, healing, wisdom, and inspiration yeah. from within yourself. So it's a receptive kind of attitude. It's a receptive mode of meditation. And, and then prayer is different. Prayer is the opposite. Prayer is where you're speaking. Uh, yeah manifesting, speaking things into existence, speaking the word, speaking affirmations, speaking the truth. That's for manifestation. Well, so the Hare Krishna, the chanting, is, is, is not listening. It's, it's speaking. So there is a difference That's between correct. the two forms. <clears throat> so it, it's, I, I think that there's, and, and merit to both. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. And I think that I think that that's that I think that's one of the things that that um, helped helped the Beatles. I mean, certainly they were all very creative before they even went over there. But but I think that that just opened up portals of all sorts of magic for them, and they they utilized so many different forms of expression in the music. I mean, certainly the Indian instruments, but they went above and beyond too. They they would bring full orchestras in, and they would do all sorts of different things with their music that that most other um, singers did not do. Everybody kind of stuck to their own genre, but they they didn't have a genre. That's very true, and they were very receptive to George Martin's ideas, and he was a great um, creative genius when it came to creating music. I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, the story of them and their journey is such an amazing story, and you tell it so beautifully in your book. It's just, it's, oh, it's amazing. I, I was, you know, I've always been impressed by the stuff that you did, but, yeah, even more so now. So, so. Oh, thank you. So, so what is Raga Rock? Uh, yeah, well, Raga Rock uh, is really rock music that, that's influenced by India. And many people think that the Beatles invented Raga Rock, but in fact, they did not. They did not invent Raga Rock. Uh, it was invented by Davy Graham, uh, who was a Rajneesh devotee, Osho, uh-huh. otherwise known as Rajneesh. David Graham, he um, he combined jazz and folk and blues and Indian ragas, and he pioneered this special kind of tuning called D-A-D-G-A-D. And he arranged, in 1963, he arranged a traditional Irish folk song, which was called She Moves Through the Fair, as a guitar uh-huh. raga. And then Jimmy Page plagiarized it, note for note. Unbelievable that he just plagiarized the whole damn thing without changing anything. And he called it White Summer. And he failed oh, wow. to credit Davy Graham. And um, also, yeah, also the Yardbirds, they featured a sitar in. Uh, an unreleased demo that they did in February 1965 is called Heart Full of Soul. 
and it had a sitar on it. And then in June of 1965, Jeff Beck, who was one of the Yardbirds, he imitated that sitar part using a fuzz box on, on his guitar. And then the song became a hit. Wow. So that song, Heart Full of Soul, was really the first rock song to ever have a sitar on it. But unfortunately, it was just a demo. The, then in the Kinks single, See My Friend, uh, Dave Davies, his guitar replicated an Indian drone sound. And the Kinks got, uh, got that drone sound because they stopped in India in December 1964 and they heard chanting on the beach. So they tried to make a sound, that, something that sounded like that. So surprisingly, the birth of Raga Rock should not be attributed to the Beatles. It should be attributed to Davy Graham primarily and also the Yardbirds and the Kinks. Wow. Well, I think one other thing, too, you've spoken um, often about people being on the roof at night. And is is that common in India? Is it because it's so hot that that's where the coolest air is? Is, is Because you notice a lot of the houses have those <clears throat> those flat roofs so that, you, you know, you can go up there. And <clears throat> I'm sure it's not for barbecuing. So, you <laughs> <clears throat> don't people, you know, sometimes sleep on their roofs because it's so much cooler? Yeah, I think you'll find people sleeping on the roofs. You'll find them sleeping in the streets. You'll find them sleeping anywhere in India. They sleep out on cots outdoors. And um, in Rishikesh and Maharishi's ashram, there were steps that led up to the roofs of the buildings. So on Maharishi's bungalow roof, Maharishi often met the Beatles on the on the roof of his bungalow, and he met us too when we were when we stayed after. There was only a handful of us who stayed after the course. The course was three months, first three months in 1970, and then we stayed on. and And he would meet us up there on the roof at night under the moon. You know, it's just a nice atmosphere. It's a kind Very of romantic cool. kind of place. And the and the Beatles, their own bungalow that they stayed in, there were steps that went up to their roof. So they chose that as a spot where they would compose music and hung out up there. And you see lots of photos of them up on the roof in India. There's a lot of photos. And a lot of those photos are in this book, The Inner Light. Like I said, there's 170 very rare photos in this book. Yeah, there. I, I'm sure there are. I mean, I even the ones that I saw I thought were fabulous. Um, did it cost money to stay at the ashram? Yeah. I mean, the, the course was, uh, you had to pay to go on the course. I believe uh-huh. the course I went on, it was $200 or $250 or something like that to take the course. However, Maharishi didn't charge the Beatles a dime, ever. They went on the course in um, Bangor, North Wales, in August of 1967 and never paid Maharishi one penny. And they went to the course in India in 1968, and they were guests of Maharishi. They never paid a penny for that. And that's a quote from Ringo. Ringo Starr said they never paid Maharishi a penny for anything. But didn't that help to attract other people, too? I mean, wasn't it sort of a promotional thing? You know, I studied with the same Maharishi that that the Beatles did. So I'm sure that, that, you know, just from their 
their celebrity and the stars that that you know followed as well that that you know there were droves of people that signed up be, just to be able to be in the same atmosphere that that all these famous people were they still are people are still visiting rishikesh to this day they're going to visit the hallowed halls of the <laughs> ruins that are left over there <laughs> buildings that are falling really? down they're still over there yeah people are going yeah, I there thought they there was a picture i think there was actually a picture in the book that i saw that looked it looked so empty um yeah <clears throat> I guess primitive is a better word too. Well, yeah. So that, so that, <laughs> well, well, yeah, but 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 it's it's sort of like the kind of place you would expect there to be a spiritual essence there, um, a, a place to get in touch with. You know, no telephones, no radios, no TVs, just right. peace. I mean. That's hard to find these days. It's really hard to find. And and exactly. and, and and quiet. I mean to to really be able to be at peace where it's quiet is a difficult thing to find anywhere these days. There's always a buzz of some sort. There's always an airplane flying over. There's always a, you know a cell phone ringing. And to be in in that kind of an atmosphere must have been magical. I have um, I have ringing in my ears. I I have ever since uh, I I can't remember when I didn't have it. And uh, I I a chiropractor once was adjusting my neck, and I said stop. And you know he said what did I do wrong? I said nothing. It's just I don't have the ringing in my ears, and I'm hearing silence. And I haven't heard silence in so long. It was amazing. And I said, whatever you did, you know, and he said, I don't know what I did. And and, and I never felt, I never, you know, I never heard the silence. And, and I keep hearing, you know, the, the sound of silence. Um, <clears throat> I can only remember hearing it once. And it was amazing. So wow. um, silence is precious. But but if it the ringing went away, I I I would really feel like I was lost. That that you know, <laughs> what did I do wrong? I I lost my ringing. I'm very used to it. It it, it doesn't bother me. I can't believe me. I'm giggling at that. That's really not funny at all. But um, yeah. No, it it's so. true. And 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 a part of me thinks the ringing may be partially due to a spiritual opening that I had. And and if I close that door, I don't want to close out you know, what I get from spirits. So I'm keeping the ringing. Um, <clears throat> I just I just noticed how close we are to, to uh, you know, to the end of the show. I want, I want, you know, give out your information, where they can find you, how they can find you, where you're going to be, that kind of information. Okay. So I have a website, drsusan.org, drsusan.org. And that's my main website. I also have another uh, important website, which is divinetravels.com. That's D-I-V-I-N-E-T-R-A-V-E-L-S. That's plural on the travels, divinetravels.com. And uh, my inner, the, the new book that we've been discussing tonight is called The Inner Light, How India Influenced the Beatles. 
And you can purchase that anywhere that you buy books. You can get it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, on Target, on any place on, online where you buy books or your local bookseller. And I always recommend people go to their local booksellers so that you're supporting local businesses in your area. Uh-huh. So support your local business and ask your local bookstore to get the book, The Inner Light, How India Influenced the Beatles. And like I said, it's an amazing book. It's got 512 pages. It's like an encyclopedia of the Beatles and their relationship with India. It's got 950 endnotes, 130 QR codes, 170 rare, rare photos. Uh, it is a fabulous book, if I say so myself. It's told through the songs. Each chapter is a different song. And it'll tell you all that you ever wanted to know about the Beatles, the real meanings of these songs that the Beatles wrote and what they were really trying to convey with these songs that people just don't even know what the story is. I mean, I talked about a couple of them here. I talked about Dear Prudence. I talked about Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill and a couple other ones. But um, you can find out about dozens of these songs and what their real meanings are in this book. It's a very entertaining book, very easy to read. People have just been praising it. So I think people really like it. It has a beautiful cover, too. The inner oh, light of India influenced the Beatles. And, you know, I have to add my endorsement. Um, it really is a magical book, and it does take you back. If you were my age, it takes you back. And and it introduces you to an amazing time in life. If you're younger, <clears throat> you miss something special for sure. But uh, mm-hmm. it... it I found it intriguing. I could not put it down. Um, I usually set aside a certain amount of time every day to read because I have to read a book a week. And I found myself um, just going way beyond my, my whatever I had said because uh, it was so interesting. And, and I want to thank you so much for writing it and, and for being with us tonight to share it with everybody. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so glad that you enjoyed the book, and it makes me very happy. Oh, I loved the book. And <clears throat> and we'll try to get you back on again. You, I know you've got, you know, a dozen or so books. That, you know, we'll find another one that we can talk about. Um, we, you know, we, we I had you on, we did one on, I think, meditation or prosperity meditation. Probably, we, proster, prosperity meditations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we'll find another book and get you back. Awesome. Um, I've got 20. <laughs> I know. So thanks again, and um, I will you. be talking to you. And uh, everybody, thank you for, for being with us and listening. Please check the book out. It is really, you you have never had a book in your hands like this before, I promise you. And it's it's precious. Amazing, and she's done a beautiful job. So, thank you for being here, and I will see you all, hear you all. I'll be talking to you um, next week. Take care now, and good night.